It's a very powerful tool that predators somehow have adopted so that they can completely and utterly isolate victims. It's got to be survivor-centric. You trust your teachers in schools or you trust your pastors or anyone in the church. That's who you look up to. Nobody wants to acknowledge that such horrible things happen. And now, The Safety Zone. Welcome, folks, to a new episode of The Safety Zone with Mike McCarty. I'm Melinda Ron, and we have a very special guest today, Mike, that we're just thrilled that she's here. And not only of who she is, but just, just her incredible story. And it's a story that, unfortunately, we hear often. But at the same time, it's a story that needs to be heard. And she has just been wonderful in not only her work in addressing sexual abuse prevention and survivors, but also with helping us on our learning zone training for churches. So Mike, I'm going to let you introduce her because you know Joelle Castix. Welcome to the show. And Mike, take it away. Yeah, absolutely. Welcome, Joelle. We're excited to have you this morning. Well, thank you so much. I'm really happy to be here. And as Melinda mentioned, we met maybe a year ago. I guess we've met virtually because of COVID. Yeah. And so we've spent some time developing training specifically for church and ministry, which we'll talk a little bit about, but we really today want to really focus on listening to survivors. You're going to kind of walk us through kind of what you've lived. And both Joelle and I had written a op-ed that was released, I think, last week. And kind of one of the things I mentioned in the op-ed is a late pastor once said, if the devil can't beat the church, he'll join it. And man, does it feel like that is prophetic and true today. Every single day I get headlines, every day, to the point I think I even said in the op-ed, it's overwhelming, which is amazing because I was a violent crime detective. So it takes a lot to overwhelm me, but I really am overwhelmed by the level of sexual abuse that is happening inside the church. So we're going to jump right in and really start to talk about some of these things. But one of the things you mentioned, Joelle, that I thought was really powerful, you said, it's important to make sure that we're survivor-centric. Can you really help listeners understand what you mean by survivor-centric? Well, I think that the whole idea of survivor-centric and trauma-informed is, is a new concept because for so many years, survivors were silenced because nobody wanted to talk, talk about it. They didn't want to acknowledge the crime existed. They didn't want to acknowledge that people in power and control, mostly men, were sexually abusing children. They didn't want to face um, the systemic cover-up of these kinds of crimes. And we found, and we meaning the survivors movement and those who follow it and study it, that the best way to develop programs, compassion, and child safety is always by coming from the point of view of the survivor. Because when we empower survivors to speak, when we empower survivors to use the law, when we empower survivors to not bear the burden of the shame then what we do is we flip that balance of power. And so when we're survivor-centric, what we do is we basically take away power from the predators and those who cover up for them. Because we're now saying that 
our approach is always going to be focused upon those who were hurt the most and listening and validating what happened to them, believing them and supporting them. And so because children listen, children learn and children emulate what they see. So if a child sees survivors standing up and saying, what happened to me was wrong, it wasn't my fault. And this is what happened. And this is what the church needs to do. This is what the scouts need to do, so on and so forth. That child who is being abused right now stands up and says, I'm being given a line by this person who's sexually abusing me. And so we empower kids to come forward and speak. We empower people who are within criminal statutes of limitations to come forward and speak. And so then what happens is predators get thrown behind bars and it's a nice little deterrent factor. I have mentioned in the past that really everything I've learned about survivors, both sexual abuse and domestic violence, because that's where I've spent really my whole adulthood as a detective and a consultant. Everything I learned started when I was probably about 15 or 16, and I gave up my bedroom because my parents had taken in a young girl in our community that had been sexually abused by her father, school teacher, and there was no other safe place for her. We knew the family, knew them well, went to church with them. But when I got to Nashville, I learned very quickly that I still didn't understand the dynamics. I didn't understand the survivor experience. And I listened. And when we don't listen, I don't understand how you can even begin to create a culture where you're going to help or prevent if my first reaction is to shut survivors down, which seems to be a very typical response. Well, it's shutting them down and then putting yourself in their shoes as a fully equipped adult. So how many times have you heard, well, gosh, if that guy came up to me, I'd punch him, you know, or whatever. So it's a complete lack of understanding of the grooming process. It's a complete lack of understanding of the fact that Children who are sexually abused love the person who sexually abused them. And when I say love, it can be their parent because this person is is in a position of, and I'm not saying the kid wants the abuse or likes the abuse. I'm saying that the predator has turned it around and tricked this kid into thinking that sexual abuse is love. Trick the kid into relying upon them for love and support and mentorship and all this other stuff, and most likely has isolated the kid from any other sources of honest and caring support. And so when we become survivor centric, we begin to understand that dynamic of grooming and we begin to, I mean, and this is, this is new in that even like 10 or 15 years ago when survivors would say, I loved the person who sexually abused me. We were like, don't say that people won't understand. Now we can openly say it because this is a child with a child's sensibilities who was tricked, who was vulnerable and who was tricked and who was horribly hurt. And that compounds that shame if you don't listen and you don't validate that part of the story. And so we've been able to change a lot of that discussion in the past few years. And I'm predicting, I'm not a scientist, social scientist, but that the shame level of survivors with that earlier intervention and the understanding of the grooming process is going to positively affect them throughout their lives. And we're going to come back to some of the grooming because it's central to what you survived, but you, you hit a few key points here that are really hard for anybody who has not been raised, has not been abused to really understand without some training or listening to survivors speak. And, and love is the first one. This whole idea, I started 
helped start what became the largest domestic violence police base unit in the U.S. to train police officers that the person that sometimes calls them for help, because half the time it's coming from somebody outside of the survivor. But even if the survivor called us, the quickest way to shut that survivor down is for me to attack the perpetrator verbally, to belittle them, to put them down. And all of a sudden, I turn the survivor into this abuser's biggest defender. These dynamics, this love dynamic is so tough for anybody to really comprehend that hasn't been trained well. Well, in the extreme, we see this with sex trafficking victims. So when there is an intervention in the sex trafficking ring, we have teenage girls who are being sold for sex by and usually an adult male or an adult woman. And these these girls are repeatedly raped, abused, deprived of food, deprived of basic dignity, everything else. And when there is some kind of raid, the people who are the hardest to bring in for help are the actual victims. Because they're the first to say that this pimp, my daddy, has been the most stable person in my life. They take care of me. They, they feed me. I have a roof over my head. And they're so indoctrinated with the Stockholm syndrome of you know, this person is, is taking care. And so that's, that's the extreme. But even in my own case, so when I came forward and told my parents what was going on, it was towards the tail end and I was angry and I was sad and I was looking for help because no one was helping me. The school knew and covered it up. My peers knew and blamed me for it. And so when I told my parents, they instantly said it was my fault. Well, if you had, and my mother's gross words were, if I just kept my legs shut, I wouldn't be in the problem that I'm in. Mm. But later on, and I don't remember this part happening during that initial conversation, but later on, my mother said, Joel, you were not a victim because when, because you defended him, you always defended him. We could tell you, you cared about him. So you must have wanted it. And they mm. used that against me, even though I was coming to them and, and being like, something's wrong, I'm young, I need help. And so it's a very powerful tool that predators somehow have adopted so that they can completely and utterly isolate victims so that they have no semblance of support. Because when people go to the victim, they go, you know, they listen to me and, and, and they see that I cared about this person. I don't want them to go to jail. And I just want this part to stop. So that vulnerability. They zero in. And in your case, you were a, a like a young teen, right? Or mm-hmm. I mean, I have a teen. And I, I mean, you know, that that whole season in life is everything is topsy-turvy. And and they're just trying to figure out going from childhood to, to adulthood. And I just find it interesting because everything you said, it's always the vulnerability yeah. um, that comes in. Well, it's the kid with low self-esteem. It's the kid with chaos mm-hmm. at home. In my own case, on the outside, my house looked great, but my mother was a raging alcoholic. My dad was covering that up. I was alone. It was just, and, and so all I wanted was for like an adult to pay attention to me and like teach me how to kind of go through the appropriate developmental stages. I wanted a mentor. I didn't want to be abused, but right, right. I got the other. It doesn't start that way. Yeah, exactly. Right. It starts with the relational aspect. 
Well, and it's it's a long, slow grooming is a slow process. And people say, and it's hard to explain to people because they say, well, you know, why would a predator take so long? But they don't understand it's it's multi-phase. So while I was being groomed, there was another girl who was already being abused and one who'd been pushed out and one in the chute behind me. So there was always someone because it's just this continual cycle because kids are a temporary issue for predators. There's always plenty of kids. And Joelle, this was a teacher. He was a private school. He was a non priest teacher in a Catholic school, but this, the Catholic school I went to is very well known. And my story is public. It's modern day high school here in Southern California. And anyone who follows high school football knows who they are. In the 80s and early 90s, it was predator high. We had the the principal was credibly accused by at least 20 some odd kids, vice principal, the band director married a student right after graduation, two choir directors, the one who abused me and the one after him, cross-country coach, the guidance counselor, a dean of students, the AV guy. They brought in an AV guy who was a priest from Northern California who had been busted sexually abusing kids in graveyards. And they brought him down to work at Modern Day because it's like, oh, you know, you'll fit in perfectly. So when you think about it, people are like, oh, Joelle, you know, it's it, it doesn't happen. I'm like, it's, it's surprising that any kid got out of there during that era without being sexually abused. And the only reason we don't know what's going on now is because we don't have kids coming forward now who because they're still as my friend Jeff Dion says when a survivor's young they're still cooking they're still trying to to heal and they haven't come to a place where they can say something because it's such a the school is such a powerhouse in the area it's so deeply tied to the Catholic Church it's such a it's a status symbol everyone has modern day stickers on their car so it's like kids are not going to come forward until they are so fully healed that they can come against a machine and it's a it's the authoritative when you add in the faith aspect, that's the place that most people that we run to or that we trust. You trust your teachers in schools or you trust your pastors or anyone in the church. That's who you look up to. And so when you see that authoritative figures, I grew up in Southern California. I had friends that went there and I remember hearing in, in my teens and early yeah, teens in the 80s and, I, and they would tell stories. And I remember sitting there thinking, Huh? You know, I oh, was yeah. just, yeah. Well, and when you add in that religion and faith element, it makes it so much more pernicious and hurtful to the survivors. Because like you said, number one, my first year and a half at Modern Day, it was my home. It was the one place that I found the love and support and faith and everything else that I really needed. But then you add in religious views on sexuality. So we have, and this is a big problem in the Boy Scouts as well. So male victims aren't going to come forward because if they were abused by a dude, they're like, well, I don't, I'm, I'm not gay. Am I gay? I don't know. It's a sin. I'm going to get kicked out of school. I'm going to get kicked out of the Boy Scouts. And uh, for girls who are sexually abused, it's the, especially in the Catholic sphere, there are two kinds of women. There's what three, virgin whore and mom. And I couldn't fit into mom, so I was obviously the whore. And so it's it it's very troubling because women are do 
not, especially in the Catholic tradition, but we do see this in the evangelical traditions, are not given the credibility of voice and status. And so their stories are simply not heard and they're blamed for everything. It's just, it's just too easy to blame them. Which feeds right into that abuser, though, right? I've trained, I don't even know, maybe hundreds of thousands of police, prosecutors, judges over the last 20-some years. And one of the statements I made every single time I trained, I would leave them with this. The most believable person you will speak with during an investigation will 100% be the abuser. And they're like, what? You see these looks on their faces like, no, nobody could get over on me, dude. And I'm like, dude, if you think that you are being manipulated every single time you walk in. Hey, dude, what would you do if your wife was doing that? What do you think? Did you see what she looked like? She told me she was 19. And they're so believable. I think people have this weird image of abusers as being these weird looking, strange acting, driving, as my young daughter says, the white creeper van. That's not the case, right? That's what makes it so hard. Well, if child predators, if the only tool they had was candy, they wouldn't be very successful because these are people who want to be around kids. So they're going to be the nicest, most affable, outgoing. And then that's when we get into the discussion of grooming the entire community. And in that op-ed, when you, and you wrote, put that line in there about the most believable person is the actual abuser. I'm like, oh my God, that's so right. Because how many times have I worked? Well, I'll tell you, in my 20 years of helping survivors, a survivor comes forward and you know who gets the rally of support? The abuser. Who gets the parade? The abuser. He would never do that. I did an event outside of a church where a priest was arrested. They were able to prosecute him and he had a, like a 40-year career of sexually abusing kids. And I had this guy get in my faith and he's like, you know... I had this man in my house. I let him babysit my kids. He's a wonderful man. He would never do this. How dare you say it? And and I remember standing there and looking at him and it's like, in, in my heart of hearts, I want to say, you need to talk to your kids right now. But instead, it's like, thank you very much for your input. I really appreciate it. But these are the people whose, whose homes they just let these these predators into. And they are going to be, like you said, the most affable, outgoing, great guys, because that's how they gain access, opportunity, and status. Which is interesting in context, because I don't know any other crime where we put this kind of pressure on the survivor. I've never walked into a yeah, you don't walk into a bank robbery and ask the teller, well, why do you keep the door unlocked? There's just, we believe people who are victimized if somebody breaks into their house, somebody steals their car. We just naturally always believe them. However, if you tell me that you're being physically abused by somebody you love or know or sexually abused, we immediately begin to ask all the questions of the survivor. Why do you stay? Why don't you leave? And I used to just... I may have thought some of the same things in domestic violence. Well, I'll tell you why they don't leave in domestic violence, because 75% of victims that are killed are killed after they leave, not while they're in the home. Why do they go back? I can give you a million reasons they go back. I can think of two reasons why they might leave. And it's just we're asking the wrong questions of the wrong person here. And it's just so frustrating 20 some years later that we're still doing it. And Mike, when you said that, Mike, 
I've been sitting here thinking that the whole time, at least within the church environment, you know, I'm a conservative evangelical, and some of the most strongest proponents for victims of crimes have been my community. And yet, like you said, on when it comes to this issue, it's totally the opposite. It's really like almost taking, I'm not saying they're doing it intentionally, but taking the side of the criminal. And it's a real, to me, it's just like turning everything upside down in how behaviors or how we how we look at victims in other situations. Yeah, it's when you look at every stride that has been taken for victims' rights, survivors' rights, it's always been survivor-led. Everything from the National Center of Victims of Crime to all of the legislative change that has happened that allows survivors to come forward later, it's always been survivor-led. There's never been someone who just stood up and said, hmm, we have a big problem and we need to fix it. And if it were murder or bank robberies or anything else, people would be shouting from the rooftops. But again, it goes back to the nobody wants to acknowledge that such horrible things happen because for good people, good people like us, I'm assuming we're all good people, <laughs> um, <laughs> the, the idea of sexually abusing a child is anathema. Who would do that? And so, but the three of us here and the people listening to this podcast are folks who are like, no, we have to be survivor-centric and understand. But for those who are not survivor-centric, it is just beyond their comprehension. People can, I can sit here and say, wow, someone charged at me with a knife. I guess I'd have to you know, defend myself and they might end up dead. Actually, it wouldn't. I'm not very good at that kind of stuff. But you can see yourself in places where crimes could happen desperation. There's no amount of desperation. There's no amount of self-defense. There's no amount of anything that could ever make me want or need or whatever to sexually abuse a child. And so that's people, they just, they can't even put themselves there. Mm -hmm. And so that's why we've been flipping that conversation to make it more survivor centric. Because if you, unfortunately, survivors have had to carry this burden, but they can't let it go. So we just keep trudging along and the more that we flip that, the more that we can get other people to, to pick up the banner, those who are not normally a part of the movement. And Joelle, you said some very powerful things. I want to touch on these and then I want to kind of get to, hey, here's some solutions. Here's what we need to do. But, but before we get there, you had mentioned not only the impact it had on you, the sexual abuse, but the impact it's had even long lasting. Would you mind sharing? You talked about trust issues and your faith and sometimes we lose sight of and, and if we're talking specifically here about the faith, Christian, Catholic communities, nothing should be more important than looking at a person's faith in eternity and how this is impacted. Well, it's, I like to consider myself a reasonably put together person who's done a lot of healing and everything else. But when I was putting together the statement for the op-ed, I got really mad. And it's been a long time since I've been that mad because I had forgotten in many ways, or just kind of put aside how awful it truly was and how much it still affects me. So again, trust issues and faith. I cannot go into a Catholic church and take any of it seriously. I go to weddings, funerals, stuff like that if I have to, but there's nothing left. It's just a sham from top to bottom. And I have friends of faith who are like, well, but it's not... 
it's not the those people, it's us. I'm like, no, uh-uh, that's, that's gone. I have a general disdain for authority altogether because I did not do very well in corporate America because I'm the first to pick up, you know, hold up my hand and say, you guys are lying, cheating thieves. I'm out of here. Um, so, and then when it comes to personal relationships, it's survivors deal with a very tricky dynamic of self-destructive behaviors. And for many, it's addiction. For many, it's alcoholism. For a lot of women, it's sexual promiscuity because it's it's a way that someone who is lost and alone and, and is trying to flip that balance of power. And I'll be brutally honest. I'm, for me, it was that promiscuity, which went me down, you know, took me down a very long line of very bad relationships, including a, a marriage that was just an absolute disaster. I'm happily married now, by the way. So, um, and then, uh, in case he's lurking and listening, um, <laughs> lurking. <laughs> yeah, he's, my husband's a good guy. Um, but then there little things like, so during the course of the abuse, I got pregnant and I had to go get an abortion now in the Catholic church as well as many Christian church, that is the worst of the worst, but I had no other choice. And so I divorce my first husband, I marry my husband, Mike. And 16 years ago, I become pregnant with our son. And my poor Mike had to like pick up the pieces because all of a sudden it was all about shame. And he sat down and said, well, you're 34 years old. You're married. You have a home. You're supposed to have a baby. And it's just like, it was just this horrific shame. I hated being pregnant. I hated everything. Because it just, it Mm -hmm. took me back to that. And and then when my son was born, it took me, I had some serious postpartum depression involved in that. And, And it was, it was a struggle. And then watching, and now I feel he's a great kid and I love him to death. And I work really hard to make sure that he has every chance to succeed. But I look at him and I'm like, thank God you're a boy for my sanity. Because I look at the kids that are his peers and and kids I've watched grow up and the girls and I'm just like, I see myself and it would Mm -hmm. kill me Mm -hmm. if I had a teenage girl running in and out of this house. And I would have to do a lot of serious work on that. And I totally acknowledge it. I go around and around with Mike. I still live in Southern California. I live like four miles from modern day. I see it all the time. And it, it hurts. It really hurts. It's a constant battle. I'm sick of that school. I'm sick of the Diocese of Orange and all the stuff that they pull. And they will all stand there and say, we've made great strides. And I'm like, well, yeah, all those strides were at the the tip of a spear that I was holding and poking you with. So those are, those are the struggles. And mm-hmm. you know, there's still a lot of shame. A few weeks ago, I helped Michael Johnson, who was the child, youth protection officer for the Scouts for 10 years. You know, he came forward and said, Scouts are not safe for kids. My friend Jeff Dion spoke, who is an Eagle Scout and was sexually abused as a part of Order of the Era, one of their secret societies. And he, Jeff, has been a crime victim's advocate leader for years. He headed up the Crime Victims Bar Association. He works with the National Center for Victims of Crime. And now he heads up the Zero Abuse Project, where all we do is fight child abuse and child sexual abuse. And even he stood up and said, you know, I still carry a lot of shame. He said, you know, I still carry a, a lot of shame because I was 15 and I should have known better. I know that's not true, 
And that's the thing. It's, it's, I was 15, I was 16. And I look at people who still to this day, my peers who do not believe that I was, I'm a survivor. They think I wanted it. I get emails every once in a while from people who will say, you know, Chichua, I just want to apologize because, you know, I was one of those people who supported the man who abused you. And now I have a teenager and I realized that mm. what happened to you wasn't your fault. And a part of me is like, wow, that's great. Another part of me is like, I really didn't want to know you were one of those people. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So it's it's hard. And as I as I get older and as I become more introspective, I've been in a fortunate position of, of doing enough healing that I'm not in any kind of survival mode and haven't been for a long time. It just, you know, you, you start to look around and be like, how could have things have been different? Mm-hmm. What what could Joel have been had I not had a serious mm. detour? Which really leads right into where we want to be in kind of bringing this all together is we've launched a training. And this is really geared towards youth serving organizations. It's not specific to church and ministry, though that's where we are releasing right now. Several of the things we've touched on here, but the first step we talk about in the training with the staff and leaders of the church and ministry is you have to have a culture of prevention. And the first step in having a culture of prevention is one, believing that violence is preventable. And two, it's got to be survivor centric. You've got to embrace because it's not only we want to prevent this from ever happening to any other child. That is 100% what we're trying to do. But you have survivors sitting in your church every Sunday that have been through this and maybe never have told anybody. So you've got to think about how you talk, what you say. I told Melinda about a month ago, I read an article in a Christian, very, very well-read Christian publication, and the author was writing some great points in terms of what the church needs to be doing, but he made two or three statements that inherently showed bias. And Mm. it was ignorance. He had no idea what he was saying. I saw it immediately. But as we launched this training, the core of what you just talked about, you've bundled that in your, I think, three modules of the training into actual solutions, how to recognize red flags, how to understand community grooming. We want solutions that volunteers, staff members, when they go through the training, they're like, ah, I get it. We want to empower them. And so one, thank you for sharing all of this, because I think it's important to be able in context to understand exactly how it's impacted you. Mm. But now let's take this and never let it happen to anybody else. Exactly. And I think that when when we come from a survivor-centric perspective, every survivor who comes forward comes forward for basically one reason, to make sure that what happened to them doesn't happen to anybody else. And that's why I came forward initially and then later on because I knew he was abusing other girls and I knew there was a cover-up. Every single survivor is the same in that. And taking that and embracing it and understanding that the uncomfortable truths are what is going to save us and is what is going to save our children from having to suffer through what generations previously have gone through. And 
how easy it is. And this is in any training I do and any talk I do. It is so easy to prevent child sexual abuse. So easy. You report, number one, you know how to report and you do it. And number two, you just talk to your children and you listen. And between those two, I mean, all the other, the tangible tools that are in the modules and everything else are like right there. But it's like, just know how to report and say you will report. Because I think that most people, we come from the, oh, you know, I don't, I don't want to be a tattletale. What if I'm wrong? If, to use your earlier example, if you were in a bank robbery and you saw someone pull a gun, you wouldn't say, well, I'm not really sure it's a robbery. Could be they're just really good friends and like to point guns at each other. So I'm not going to report. No. So we, it's, it, that's, I mean, there's just, it's so easy and it doesn't mm. have to be scary. It doesn't have to be icky. It doesn't have to be any of those things. It can yeah. be, it can be empowering. It can be any training. And I, that's why I love your modules and your trainings. And what I try to do is I try to leave a group of people feeling more positive feeling more empowered and feeling more powerful than they ever have before and hopeful because it's like this, we, we don't come from a place of fear. We come from a place of power. And with that power and, and our communities working together, we can do amazing things because no kid was ever kept safe through fear. Absolutely. Even you said that too, about it's really changing the narrative. I think a lot in the, in the church, in the evangelical churches too, is there just a lot of it really is a lack of training. There are a lot of naive, kind of naivety in terms of a lot of times just even grasping that that can happen. I mean, I know even with all the reports, I know many wonderful churches that, especially small, that just think, oh, no, it wouldn't happen here. We know everybody. We're a family. But, you know, the thing that struck me too, Mike, Joelle, and, and, and Joelle, I mean, please correct me if I'm wrong, but I, I look at Joelle and, and the other survivors, and I think in some ways you you have sacrificed and dedicated yourself in helping others. And I look at the sacrifice, that's what I'm saying is you're in some ways you're you're still having to relive what happened. In other words, you you know, you didn't go off and retire and go to the golf course and you're active in helping others and and sharing your story still and and being on the front lines for better luck words. And it seems like that takes a little sacrifice just for you, for you personally. It's, it's a combination of sacrifice and tenacity because... And you definitely have tenacity, right? As much as I would love to, I'm done, I'm out of here, my work is over and someone else can take over. Then something happens and I'm like, gotta be involved, I can't, I can't do it. And, and it's... I have, there's a scene from the Godfather three where Michael Corleone says, Oh, you know, I turn it and they draw me back and that's totally me. Oh, they so, um, I, that's, that's where I'm at. I can't, I can't quit because it really is an understanding of a, of a passion and, and passion. People say, well, what are you passionate about? Well, passion does cause pain. That's why we call the passion of the Christ and everything else. Oh. And I'm willing to go through that because I'm I I know no other way, and I could see myself no other way. And I have to say, and Joelle, I know that I mean on the faith end, I understand where you are, and I but I I sit here and I listen to you, and I think of um, there's a scripture 
it's actually in the Old Testament, but the Lord gives beauty for ashes. And in the sense of horrible things happen in our lives. And and yet a lot of times the big question is, well, why did why did God allow that? And sometimes we blame God for it happening. And and the reality is we live in a sinful world and people do bad things and they make those choices and it does affect everyone. But at the same time, the beauty that can come out from the ashes from something horrible is exactly what you're doing in the sense of helping others. You understand. You understand where they're from and you and other survivors, and I have talked about this even with like uh, violence, gun violence. I know Mike, of course, the, the survivors in very different aspects, but the very people that can that go out and they help others in that same situation because you've been there. And it may seem like a small thing, but in many ways, it's that ability to help others that where the beauty can come out. Because if you, some other people are either helping to go through the healing process or being protected. Well, thank not you. Having to I go appreciate through. that. Thank you. And I think that is kind of perfect. The hope. Mm. I mean, and that's where we want to end. Like mm. the training is not a downer. The reason we created training is because some of the training that's out there, men in three-piece suits delivering training. That's not it, man. Yeah. You got to hear from the experts. And that's why we brought together many experts to bring all these perspectives with the core of the survivor-centric approach to these training. And they're quick. These modules are sometimes seven to 10 minutes in length. So we're not going to put you behind a phone or a computer for nine hours grinding through a college lecture. These are fast-paced, energetic, Mm -hmm. solution-driven. And I just want to say thanks, Joelle, because I I know every time you tell your story, Mm -hmm. it does. It's a... It has an impact on yourself, and you articulated that well, but by doing that, what we hope is that everybody listening, when you see something, you're going to say something, and think of Joelle, that child that maybe is is something, they've had them isolated. If isolation comes up, act Mm -hmm. on it. But Mm -hmm. you're preventing. Your voice hopefully will be ringing in their ears each Saturday night or Sunday morning as they walk into that uh, youth area to serve. Well, all it takes, and we say this all the time, and I ask all it would have taken to save me and these other girls was one phone call, one person. It could have been one of my peers, but they were just as groomed. Could have been a parent, could have been a teacher, could have been anybody. One person picking up the phone. And even if that call wasn't enough to get him arrested or anything like that, boy, oh boy, things would have been put into motion. And that's all we need because we are all powerful enough. We are all empowered enough and we all have the tools to prevent child sexual abuse. We, we can all carry that banner with a big smile on our face because it's, it's, it's easy. Absolutely. Joelle, well, Mike, again, another wonderful podcast and an interview. And, and Joelle, you're just, you're incredible. You are oh, really a, you. just a marvelous woman. And I, I just so admire you and appreciate what you're doing. I really do. Well, thank um, you. I love working with you guys because you are so just solutions driven. And you just get stuff done and you help people. And that's why I like you guys. You just get stuff done. I was going to say a bad word, but I'm not going to do it.
<laughs> for all our churches listening yes. Uh, yes. oh I know pastors that have moments yes. too we're all people right we just thank you and, and, and in saying that Mike for those that are listening that do uh, that are pastors or, or youth leaders or volunteers at churches what is the best way for them to check out a little more about the Learning Zone, about our training program. Yeah, absolutely. You can go on the website, safehiringsolutions.com. There's a Learning Zone dropdown. We've got little promo videos. You can see what Joelle actually looks like and all of our contact information's on there. So if you want a little more information on the training, the pricing, what it takes to implement, we can help you out. Wonderful. So thank you again, Joelle. Thank you, Mike. And we look forward to a new podcast soon. This podcast is sponsored by Safe Hiring Solutions, a nationwide company that offers comprehensive, industry-leading, real-time security solutions for companies, schools, churches, and nonprofit organizations.